It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many brutes are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no sheets. I'll let her put the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, but it's just a gang from the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Reporter, to jump, the crowd, with that low plane, fine then Up for overflow, five minutes in corners, but it'll be the devil, save the devil, world in your own knees, see your heart, tell me that the river in the river was the right, you patriotic, patriotic, land like right, my feeling is pretty It's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right in the dark heart of the city. This is the hour of doom. And bloom. Of Christmas doom. Christmas doom. No, there's no such thing. Well, it is just about Christmas 2018 for those people who are listening to this in the distant future. <laughs> and you're yeah, listening. Yeah, like next year. Yeah, like next year. Which is in a few days. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which they are listening to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a gracious garrison of greatness in a gruesome world. <laughs> I'm Joe Halton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And together we are the prodigious pair, the queen and the codger, and the courageous couple. Boy, we are all sorts of stuff. Yes, we are. And we are here. Mostly we're alive. That's right. And and then... And kicking. And then we're happy. That's right. And we can walk around and chew our food. I mean, we have so many things to be thankful for. Well... We are blessed... By decent health, nobody has perfect health, I don't care who you are or how old you are, but we have decent health, and we have love, and we have happiness. Well, this is that way, Christ- that is a trifecta of, of Christmas joy. That's absolutely right? right. Yes, I was saying it's more of a Thanksgiving show kind of thing, but you're absolutely right. And for <laughs> Christmas, it's great to be able to see another Christmas and be in relatively decent Well, health. that's the only gift that I wish for, honey, that I get at least, uh, let's see, what can I probably squeeze out of you? Another, I'm hoping 35 more Christmases. That would I want be awesome. You, yes. At that least. would be awesome. Or more, or more to infinity. Well, we are here to help you guys keep it together out there, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a persnickety platypus? Well, our attorney says, crikey, don't call me, mate. <laughs> call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. That was funny. And listen to this. 
all information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern and standard care yes. can't be found anywhere... See, did you just get my rhyme, I did rhyme get there? It. Yep. You might end up being the highest medical asset left to your family in times of trouble. Is that too much to handle? Is that above your pay grade? Wouldn't it be prudent? Well, somebody's got to do it when the ambulance is not heading in your direction, and it might have to be you. You got to show the world you got more sense than the good Lord gave a duck, or you're going to be extinct like the dodo. <laughs> get some training, learn a little, won't you? And while you're at it, get some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that wonderful knowledge. I can't think of a better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster. They'll help make your home, your workplace, your school, even your church safer. And they're designed by an honest gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree they're what you should have in your medical storage. But don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page. It's store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in our store. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. A sad statement, <laughs> but actually not really because they have a lot of knowledge out there and we are often the beneficiaries of it. So connect with the geezer and the goddess and we'll tell you how. You can connect with us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine with Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Uh, also, we have a page called Doom and Bloom, which is actually the most popular page. It has close to 20,000 folks that are listening, that are following it. You can follow, speaking of following, you can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And remember to sign up for our RSS feed so you don't miss any of our content that might help you save lives in times of trouble. Just go to the upper right of the main page of doomandbloom.net and sign up. And did I mention you can find some of our articles in great magazines like Backwoods Home, American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge. We've been in so many different magazines. Some of them no longer exist, unfortunately. But I'm hoping that it wasn't because of us. <laughs> but it's true that the prepper nation is actually sort of at an ebb right now. I don't know whether it's because Donald Trump is president. I seem to see quite a difference once he was elected. Now, now that things are getting a little complex for President Trump and uh, the conservatives in this country, I do see some people that are more interested in preparedness again. But in general, it seems that it's been sort of at a low end. Now, that doesn't mean, unfortunately, that natural disasters and other kinds of issues, epidemics, things like that, infectious disease outbreaks are 
also on the ebb. They're just there like they've always been. And so it's very important for you to know how to deal with all these issues. And that's what we're here for. So oh, give me a second to plug, to shamelessly plug, our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. We're going to be uh, having, or we have that already, on Amazon.com. And you can also find it on our store at store.doomandbloom.net. And that is a detailed look at antibiotics, more detailed even than we have in our survival medicine handbook. And you can wind up getting the information that you need about infections and the antibiotics that will cure or treat them. Now, the book is only about 320 pages long, so it's not the 700-page war and peace that the survival medicine handbook is. It only concentrates on the antibiotics that are available to the average person, the things that we've been writing about for many, many years. First doctor and nurse practitioner to write about fish antibiotics and other veterinary antibiotics that may be useful in times of trouble. And it gives you a good basics, goes into detail on different infectious diseases, how to identify them, and how to figure out which is the appropriate antibiotic to treat them with and what the doses are, side effects, um, if you can use them when they're, you're allergic to penicillin, all sorts of stuff. I got to say that it's very important to know all about this if you're going to be an effective medic in times of trouble. Our book uh, is pretty darn unique. I mean, you won't find medical school professors talking about this stuff. And I understand, I understand and I admit that it's controversial in, contra in conventional medical circles. And the truth of the matter is, is that, yeah, it's not a conventional book. You will find out a lot of stuff that is important that you would find in conventional medical books, but you'll find it in plain English. You'll find out how bacteria cause disease, how the immune system works to fight infections, different disease-causing organisms, they're called pathogens, uh, how to tell bacterial versus viral disease, uh, the in epidemic and pandemic diseases that have occurred in history and that are going to occur in the future in our history, uh, how antibiotics work, the different antibiotic families, how to use antibiotics wisely, antibiotic resistance issues, and most importantly, the individual antibiotics and the diseases that each one treats, uh, including dosing, side effects, allergies, all sorts of stuff like that. We also talk about expiration dates, what you can glean from that, what that means and what it doesn't mean, how to right. establish right, how to establish an epidemic sick room that will keep your healthy people healthy and give your sick people the best chance for recovery, uh, how to deal with infections and wounds, wound care. Uh, and a exhaustive list of the supplies that I think that the effective medic in an austere setting should have. And much more than that, even, <laughs> believe it or not, just Say a it in lot your radio stuff. voice. That, that's right. And much more. <laughs> and, and much more. So just, I'll tell you, just like you have to learn how to stop bleeding if you're going to be an effective medic, you got to learn about infection and the medicines that treat it. It's going to save lives in difficult times. You believe me, you will not regret having... Our book, it's called Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings in Your Survival Library. Remember that this is stuff, all the stuff that we write about is meant for situations where there isn't a functioning modern medical system. If there is, get to a certified medical practitioner ASAP. <laughs> So anyhow, infectious disease is indeed of major concern in good times or bad, and you, the family medic has to be able to identify some of the deadliest. We just 
wrote a book about infectious diseases and the antibiotics to treat them, you know that antibiotics, if you've listened to this show, don't treat viruses. But let's talk a little bit about viruses. And there are a lot of infections out there that are caused by viruses that are often fatal, cannot be treated by antibiotics. Uh, what are vir- viruses? I guess we should start with that. Viruses are these microscopic disease-causing organisms that, unlike most bacteria, which are actually good, good, these things commonly cause disease, and these viruses can reproduce only inside the living cells of other organisms, even bacteria. That virus may use a vac- bacteria as a host. They're so simple that they rarely consist of much more than a bit of genetic code covered by a little coat of protein. And this simplicity doesn't mean that the viruses are harmless. There are so many viruses that are super dangerous, Ebola, uh, Marburg. We're going to talk about a bunch of these uh, in our show today. Now, oh, I want to just, one thing that's very interesting is that viruses have a total, the Ebola virus, for example, has a total of only seven genes. It has no chromosomes. It is like just a, this little tiny bit of genetic information. Yeah, I mean, human beings have about 20,000 genes, and they're crowded into about 23 chromosomes. Some animals have more than that. Now, viruses don't eat, and they don't grow. In truth, really, they stretch right. the very definition they're, of life right. itself. Are they alive? Right. I mean, <laughs> a viral particle without a host is called a virion. And it only acts as a living organism when it enters the host cells. They reproduce once they do that, like living beings. And the process of viral replication Mm -hmm. occurs this way. The virus finds a host cell and it binds to it. It injects its genetic material inside the host cell. And the genetic material then replicates, but not because of anything it can do on its own, but it has to use the cellular machinery that that cell that it invaded uses to make its own DNA to make viral DNA. Okay, so an analogy would be um, a, a spaceman in a capsule comes down. He's um, like Superman was when he was traveling, just sort yes. of frozen. Right. But the capsule lands in a warehouse, which been a has been abandoned but it has a lot of equipment so suddenly the space capsule opens up and the the spaceman uses the equipment in the warehouse to actually do things do things that's right so (laughs) that's actually perfect but when it was out in space it wasn't doing anything exactly right except (laughs) just traveling around looking for that warehouse absolutely now so what the end result in this case is that you get new viruses matter of fact lots and lots of new viruses produced within the host cell and the new viruses then expel themselves from the host cell and sadly it kills the host cell that's a lot different than the relationship that we have with some bacteria. I mean, we have bacteria in our guts that actually are very helpful. We very can't, helpful. That we can't digest a lot That's of food right. without having them in our body. That's right. Viruses can infect all types of hosts, animals, plants, all the way down to bacteria, like I mentioned. And uh, there are a lot of different ones uh, ranging from the common cold to rabies to herpes to Zika virus to gosh to to Ebola, just about anything. And they can be spread by mosquitoes and other vectors. 
um, at either animal or insect. Mm-hmm. They can be spread by or, or birds sometimes. Uh, they can be spread by airborne droplets and coughs or sneezes. They can be spread by contact with blood or other bodily fluids. They can be spread by taking in infected or contaminated water or food. Now, not every virus can be spread okay, I'm, every way. I'm, I, it's been nice talking to you, but I'm going to go jump in my bubble right now. <laughs> <laughs> The bubble girl. With my my N100 filter on my HVAC <laughs> air purifier <laughs> to maintain the cleanest possible environment inside my bubble. It's a scary world. It sure is, isn't it? Constant exposure to all of these things. It's, that you can't even see. And it's a wonder that we're, we actually spent any time not sick. Think about everything that we're exposed to. Well, that's all our immune day system. Long. Our immune system is really a miracle of engineering, and it really helps on a daily basis to get rid of not only infections but cancers and things like that. You have to force that, yourself not to think about these things, right? <laughs> Otherwise, very become a serious germaphobe, especially knowing all the details of of what these diseases can do to you if you get them and. Wow. It is well, we amazing. do what we can, right? I'm sure you'll talk about how to prevent these things later. Well, let's talk a little it. bit about, let's talk a little bit about what some of the worst viruses on the planet are. Oh good. Let's and, even elevate the panic. <laughs> <laughs> We're not trying don't to panic. panic. This is purely education, not Frightful information. And entertainment. It is. Edutainment. It is some entertainment. Edutainment. But we're not trying to scare you folks. So <laughs> the, the question is, are you looking, when you when you look at what's the worst virus, are you looking at the total number that died from a particular disease over the course of history? Mm-hmm. Are you monitoring the number that die every year now? Or are you monitoring the number of people that die in a percentage. What percentage of people die if they get infected with that particular virus? And in any case, the statistics are sometimes pretty darn grim. So let's talk about some of them. I guess no virus, uh, deadly virus uh, talk can begin without mentioning HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. It's been a major issue since the 1980s. I know I was in my early part of my career in emergency rooms, when we started to see people with HIV, these guys uh, wound up having mostly bowel problems in the beginning, and, and most of these folks were um, uh, homosexual under sexual preference, and so for a period of time, it was called gay bowel disease. It was actually called that, but they figured out what was causing it, the virus, and they call it the human immunodeficiency virus, the or HIV, and the syndrome that it caused wasn't just related to intestines, it actually became an overall or what we call a systemic body infection, an overall body infection, and indeed it caused an entire syndrome of all sorts of crazy things that happened to people that led them well to their demise. And that AIDS that was called AIDS, and AIDS stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. And luckily today, progress, we've had so much progress in antiviral treatments for uh, AIDS that de- death rates are no longer as bad as they were in developed countries, and plus a lot of education about safe sex and things like that have made a, a big, big difference. 
That doesn't mean that we don't have that issue now. As a matter of fact, it's a huge epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa that kills at least one or two million people every year. I mean, it is still a major, a major issue, and not only an epidemic but a pandemic. It is all over the world. And it's funny to think that it's a virus that originally was found in monkeys and apes, but got them sick and they wound up getting AIDS and dying from it. And sure enough, it somehow transmitted to humans, mutated and transmitted to humans. HIV is transmitted through body fluids. Uh, it works by turning off your immune system. It prevents your natural de defenses from killing the virus and it causes a wide range of all sorts of exotic diseases, including cancers. If you have AIDS, you get cancers that are hardly ever seen in other people. Cancers like Kaposi's sarcoma. Look that one up. I mean, it is. they are pretty strange tumors, but they're also things that are deadly as well. Uh, we call these opportunistic infections because they only seem to invade people that have weakened immunity. Now, early symptoms of... Uh, HIV and AIDS uh, certainly are not cancerous. They usually resemble the flu, headache, fever, fatigue, rash, muscle, muscle and joint pain. Some people develop ulcers in the mouth or the general region. Other people have bowel symptoms, as we mentioned from the very, very beginning. And interestingly enough, for years, a lot of people develop absolutely no symptoms at all. So it is something that kills a lot of people it is something to be concerned about and luckily there are now antiviral treatments that are available in developed countries now, i can't, can't say the same for uh, less developed countries however let's talk about other viruses hepatitis is a virus a virus uh, that comes in all sorts of different varieties everything from hepatitis a b c d e all sorts of types and it's essentially an inflammation of the liver. It's caused by a DNA virus in the case of hepatitis B or an RNA virus in the case of hepatitis A and C. Now, what does that mean? DNA is the genetic material which is present in nearly all living organisms, and it is the carrier of genetic information. RNA is usually a messenger that carries instructions from DNA to control the production of important proteins in the system. For some viruses, they actually only have RNA. We, we humans, have both RNA and DNA. And hepatitis A is uh, the one that probably has been known for, for the longest period of time. It's passed through contaminated food or water or by contact with uh, bowel movements of people that are infected with uh, hepatitis A. Hepatitis B and C, they're usually transmitted through blood or other bodily fluids, such as sharing needles, for example, if you're an intravenous drug user, uh, that would be one way that you would be get either hepatitis B or hepatitis C. Uh, however, there are a lot of patients that it's hard to figure out why they actually got it. You know, some people got it because they were transfused with somebody that had uh, hepatitis. There was some, they usually test for that these days, but in the past they didn't. Uh, hepatitis A and B can be spread sexually, uh, and hepatitis C theoretically also can, but it happens less often that way with hepatitis C. Hepatitis C could you could live most of your life without being affected by it or with symptoms, and then start having symptoms as you as you get older. So 
there are all sorts of stuff. The symptoms, though, are similar no matter what kind of hepatitis virus is involved. Victims often experience a yellowing of the skin and eyes, which is called jaundice, and that's caused by malfunction of the liver. They usually get fevers, loss of appetite. Now, the urine turns this brownish color. You get joint pain and, of course, fatigue and all the other things that make you feel bad. And any number of stomach and intestinal symptoms usually are nauseous. You may vomit a lot. It's, it's pretty bad. Uh, hepatitis A is usually a self-limited disease. A self-limited disease is something that goes away after a period of time without necessarily doing anything other than maybe bed rest. In a minority of cases, the disease may have prolonged effects, but most people do resolve it and uh, recover completely. Now, a chronic liver disease, however, that can occur in hepatitis B and C. It occurs most often in that. can't say it's not possible with hepatitis A, but it's rare, much rarer. In hepatitis B and C, you can get something called cirrhosis, and that's a scarring of the liver that leads to the failure of the organ. The, the, a cirrhosis liver or a cirrhotic liver looks sort of nodular, and, and those nodules do not contain functioning liver tissue anymore. So it's, uh, it's a big issue. Chronic disease, liver disease like that, uh, due to hepatitis B and C, actually occur, uh, exists in about 5 million Americans. I mean, five, 5 million Americans have either hepatitis B or hepatitis C and may have chronic uh, effects from it. And together, viral hepatitis accounts for probably about 1 million deaths a year worldwide. I mean, it may seem like a lot to you, but you have to remember there are 200 million people living with hepatitis C alone worldwide. So the percentage death rate, thank goodness, is not very, very high. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the hemorrhagic fevers. These are almost all viral, and Ebola is the most famous of those. Uh, Ebola virus is famously known for the epidemic in 2014 in West Africa that killed over 10,000 people. Uh, that was about 50% of those uh, infected, a little bit less than that. The virus comes in various strains, though. Some that have an even higher death rate, and some that have a very low death rate. So uh, there are all sorts of... Uh, like any virus, there are mutations, and so some mutate to become worse, some mutate to become a little less deadly, so it's interesting how, how that happens, and it's thought that even during the epidemic that the virus mutated a number of different times. They think that people got Ebola for the first time. It's usually seen in monkeys and bats and uh, some other animals that are native to uh, west at, to the Congo, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa. And folks eat this stuff. This is called bush meat. And the problem is, is they cook it over 55-gallon drums or they cook it in, in a way that really is a little bit iffy. And if you eat poorly cooked meat of any type, whether it's bush meat and whether it's a bat or a chicken, well, sure enough, you can wind up getting sick as a result. Uh, Ebola received a lot of coverage in the U.S. when uh, a Liberian national arrived in Texas with the disease. It's very sick and infected two nurses at a local hospital because we didn't have the appropriate uh, infectious disease isolation protocols that we do now. Uh, luckily, the disease didn't wind up taking hold in the U.S. and 
Now there are a lot of stricter controls as a result of the scare and a lot more hospital beds in this country. There used to be only 19 hospital beds in the entire country that could handle a contagious disease like Ebola. Now there are quite a few. So that's something I think we're going to be more protected as long as things don't really go south uh, if something like this does come to the United States. Ebola is really contagious though. It can be passed through close contact with bodily fluids, uh, and it's not thought to be airborne, although some studies sort of suggested it back in 2014, but truthfully, if Ebola was easily transmitted that way, it would have been a worldwide pandemic, massive quantities of people not not only getting it, but dying from it. Now, now early symptoms of Ebola include... um, a sudden onset of fever, uh, fatigue, joint muscle pain, sore throat, and cough, uh, like like a lot of viruses. And these, however, rapidly progress to vomiting and diarrhea, which is often bloody in nature. They wind up having rashes. They have a lot of bruising from the bleeding under the skin, and and they just bleed internally. You know, just spontaneously. They their clotting factors malfunction, and they just do not do not clot. Now, there are smaller outbreaks of Ebola, even though the Ebola outbreak in West Africa is is done, there are smaller outbreaks that do pop up from time to time, like one presently in the Congo, that actually Ebola originated in the Congo near the Ebola River, and that's why it's named that, and it continues to plague certain areas of Africa. I think there were a couple hundred people that have died in the current outbreak. Now, there are other hemorrhagic fevers. Some of them are even worse. The one that's almost indistinguishable in its symptoms from Ebola is something called Marburg virus. That's M-A-R-B-U-R-G. And like Ebola, it's a member of uh, the same uh, viral family, the filoviruses. And Marburg was first found in primates and bats. Sure enough, it had the same reservoir, so to speak, and interferes with the body's ability to clot and clot blood, and sure enough, you have a hemorrhagic fever in which people are bleeding spontaneously. And that causes multiple organ failures, uh, causes, causes uh, severe dehydration, and the death of internal tissue. There are a lot less cases, thank goodness, of Marburg virus than Ebola, but the death rate of those that have been documented so far, it's pretty close to about 90%. So it's a heck of a virus, and you certainly certain certainly one you do not want to end up getting now there's another viral fever uh, a hemorrhagic fever that's called lassa virus lassa virus so that's uh, a virus that is was first found in rats uh, rodents in west vir- in west africa and some people call it ebola light it kills as many people in west africa as ebola did during the epidemic there and when infected persons show symptoms, well, they, the symptoms are very similar to Ebola or Marburg, except that it has a death rate of about 15 to 20%. Now, that's still a pretty high quantity, not like Marburg and not like Ebola, but it is still, you know, 15 to 20% is a pretty significant mortality rate or death rate as a result of getting a, a loss of virus. The difference is that loss of virus infects over 300,000 people every year. And 
even though the death rate is about 15 to 20 percent out of those 300,000 people every year the majority of them have absolutely no symptoms at all so it's a very unusual disease there's a lot more people that have little or no symptoms and the recovery rate is is much higher so that's why they call it Ebola light now let's move from those and we'll talk about another one called hantavirus h-a-n-t-a virus hantaviruses are a family of rna viruses that may cause lung-based diseases and they are pretty fatal they were first isolated in 1995 very near where i spent my early career in miami florida uh, over time hantavirus has developed a syndrome it's called hantavirus pulmonary syndrome the pulmonary relates to the lungs and it is identified comes from the rodent it was uh, originally found in the cotton rat in Florida but now they've found it in the deer mouse in Canada the white-footed mouse on the East Coast and it seems to be transmitted by uh, dust I guess from dried rodent droppings so these things get I guess aerosolized and wind up in in the atmosphere and you wind up you don't even know you're near a rodent and sure enough you can wind up getting this there have been cases reported in 36 u.s states and there are variations that have been seen in well just about everywhere south america other parts of the world it's pretty pretty amazing there are not that many cases but it seems to be very widespread hantavirus infection presents also like a flu like in illness you can expect fever cough shortness of breath uh, headache muscle aches the victim becomes really lethargic. Why? Because they have a lack of oxygen because their lungs are not functioning and they rapidly deteriorate uh, and basically go into respiratory failure and about 36% of all sufferers actually perish from the disease. Interestingly enough, a different hantavirus actually caused an outbreak in the early 1950s during the Korean War. And uh, this was actually something that was reported uh, much later in the journal clinical microbiology reviews they actually documented 3,000 troops that wound up getting hantavirus and about 12 percent of those perished from the infection itself i want to talk about a, a very famous virus rabies rabies is indeed a virus it's, it's in the lysavirus family l-y-s-s-a virus family and it's spread when an infected animal scratches or bites another animal or human uh, and you have a huge viral load so to speak in the saliva of these infected animals and they can transmit rabies if the saliva just comes into contact with the eyes mouth or nose of somebody nearby that's how how bad it is uh, globally Dogs are the most common animal involved. There are more than 99% of rabies cases in countries where dogs commonly have the disease and indeed are caused by dog bites. However, you may be surprised to know that in the Americas, bat bites are the most common source of rabies infections in humans. Less than about 5% of cases actually come from dogs. Uh, rodents are often thought to be uh, the culprits with regards to rabies, but truthfully, rodents actually are very rarely infected with rabies and birds you may have heard of the bird flu but well birds were actually given in a an experiment rabies 
virus via injection uh, a few years ago and to see what the effect was on them, and the effect was absolutely nothing. It didn't do a darn thing to them. So for some reason, birds are immune to rabies and uh, rabies virus. Rabies does cause a number of deaths worldwide, about 17,500 deaths worldwide in 2015. Uh, about 95% of human deaths occurred in, as you might imagine, Africa and Asia. About 40% uh, unfortunately occurred in children. So it is something they wind up getting close to animals or animals <clears throat> decide that they would bite uh, kids, I guess, and find them more attractive as a victim. One of the weird things about rabies is that the period between infection and the first symptoms, now that's called the incubation period, the period between infection and the first symptoms, called the incubation period, is about one to three months in humans. That's a pretty long time. It can be shorter, or but it also can be longer. And some people have reported even years later that after a, a bite that may have come from a, an animal that had rabies, one is one case study was actually six years afterwards. It's amazing. I guess that's part of the reason why humans with bites from animals suspected of being rabid are given a series of injections starting very soon after the incident. And that, I guess, coupled with the fact that if untreated rabies is pretty much 100% fatal, well, you've got to act if you're going to save that person's life. Now, initial signs and symptoms of rabies are often pretty nonspecific. Fever and headache are very common. As rabies progresses, though, it starts looking pretty strange. It causes inflammation of the brain and the lining of the brain um, and spinal cord. And you'll see things like partial paralysis. You, you'll see really weird mental changes, anxiety, insomnia, confusion, agitation, abnormal behavior. You see this in dogs, too. Uh, some people go right into hallucinations, they become very paranoid, they're terrified, go into a delir delirium, then end up in a coma. Now, one interesting thing is that rabies used to be known as hydrophobia, which is the word that syndicate indicates fear of water. And why is that? Because they had difficulty swallowing despite having a really severe thirst. It hurt so much to drink water, however, that just the sight of water would panic some victims. And once this happened, these guys deteriorate rapidly. They produce a great deal of saliva because they can't swallow it, which makes them seem to foam at the mouth. The death of a victim of rabies usually occurs within two to 10 days after the first symptoms. That's why you have to act fast. And survival is almost unknown once symptoms have presented even if you give them intensive care, even if there was a presence of intensive care. Of course, that's not going to be something you're going to have available to you if you're the survival medic. There are a couple of different forms of rabies. There's that uh, rabies, the rabies where you are scared of water and panicky and in terror and wind up being very aggressive. And that's what they call furious rabies, furious rabies. That's about 80% of people that are infected with rabies. And the remaining 20% actually don't have that at all, uh, but they have a paralytic form of rabies that's marked with loss of uh, num sensation, numbness, muscle weakness, and paralysis. I'm not sure whether they're two different viruses or 
just two strains of viruses. I'm not sure why one gets one and one gets the other. You probably have heard of the a excruciating series of shots that you have to get if you wind up being bitten by a dog that has or an animal that has rabies. And the U.S., sure enough, the Centers for Disease Control and Pre- Prevention, the CDC, recommends that people receive at least one dose of human rabies immunoglobulin antibodies against rabies and four doses of rabies vaccine over about a 14-day period. Now, they used to inject them right in the stomach, if I remember correctly, and they used to be very, very painful, but now they're under the skin and they're no longer quite as painful a process as they used to be. So that's something at least, but none of that is helpful for you off the grid. So the best you could probably do with somebody like this is Thoroughly washing the wound as soon as possible with soap and water for at least five minutes. Believe it or not, it may reduce the number of viral particles that wind up in your victim. And iodine, uh, betadine, or alcohol is then recommended as well to reduce the virus further. Usually with wounds, you we recommend going to water or sterile saline, things like that. But the in this kind of situation, you're going to try to really decrease the viral load, and so you're going to use betadine or alcohol. There are other viruses that are pretty significant. There's something called dengue virus, and dengue virus you probably heard about during the Zika epidemic in 2016 because it was another virus that was being passed on by the mosquitoes that actually gave you Zika virus. And the Zika virus was at least in one sense, a decent virus if you had to have it unless you were pregnant because most people had no symptoms or had very little symptoms. The only problem is if you were pregnant, it caused damage to your fetus in the form of usually a very underdeveloped brain and head. And that caused, well, that's terrible. It happened to thousands of kids in uh, Brazil during that time. The funny thing is it didn't happen many other places. So the good question is, was it really the Zika virus that did it or was were there other factors involved? I, I still have my questions with, with regards to that. But dengue virus is also something that happened there. And that is a virus that first appeared in the 1950s in the Philippines and Thailand and it spread pretty much throughout every tropical or subtropical part of the globe. Probably 40% of the world's population lives in areas where dengue is a common occurrence. Uh, that is called an endemic disease, a disease that, ed, that is commonly seen in a particular area. is called endemic, and dengue is endemic in any subtropical or tropical climate. I'm essentially a p- pandemic type of endemic disease. And the disease and the mosquitoes that carry it are going to probably spread further if the, if the world warms up like uh, some scientists are suggesting will happen. Uh, dengue sickens about 50 to 100 million people a year. 50 to 100 million, imagine that. And that's according to the World Health Organization. The mortality rate, thank goodness, is only about 2%, but the virus can cause an Ebola-like hemorrhagic fever, uh, and that condition has a mortality of at least 20% if you don't treat it. So it's something... It is something I think that you should worry about and always use that mosquito repellent in warm weather when the mosquitoes are out. Uh, there's another virus called rotavirus. Rotavirus is a tragic virus because it affects 
mostly babies and young children, toddlers and babies. Uh, that is a virus that causes a severe watery diarrhea. It's one of those uh, intestinal flu kind of viruses, but it can be really, really bad. Severe watery diarrhea, vomiting, fever, abdominal pain, uh, and this lasts for days and days. Uh, additional symptoms include, of course, uh, lack of appetite, and these kids oftentimes die from dehydration. Now, they obviously don't die from dehydration in the United States, where you have good medical care, but in places where even IV fluids are not available, well, you've got kids that are going to wind up dying. Now, symptoms of dehydration is a little easier to identify in adults than children, and certainly especially infants. You'll see things like decreased urination, and the urination is, urine is usually darker than what you would normally see. Uh, the mouth and the throat will be very dry. Uh, when somebody stands up that is very dehydrated, oftentimes they'll feel dizzy. That when you uh, grab the skin of somebody who is dehydrated and you try to stretch it upward, normally, if you have a normal amount of water, body water content, it sort of snaps back into place. Wait, but, let's just be clear. We're not grabbing somebody's nose or their cheek. Right. Well, you just grab the skin on the arm. Yes. Or their back. Yeah, grab the skin on the arm, <laughs> forearm, yeah, or the for, upper forearm. Yeah, forearm and the back of the right. hand is actually one of right. the best yeah, places back to check the hand. it. And what happened? Well, I mean, older folk, it wind up tenting uh, a little bit. The skin tents up when you're dehydrated. Of course, some folks, old folks like me, you probably pull the skin over the back of my hand up, and I'm probably, <laughs> they're probably tenting all the time, but it normally wouldn't happen in young kids. Absolutely not. Now, other sort of clues that a child is dehydrated is that if they cry a lot, but they're having no tears or very few tears, that might do it. Uh, they might clue you in on dehydration. If the child is very fussy or very lethargic, that might do it. And these can be very severe. And if you do not get fluids into these kids, they, they'll die. They, they indeed will just die. So it's very important to be sure to make sure your hydration status of your people is always high, especially if they're down with any kind of illness. Of course, the major virus, the big virus that kills the most people and, and may have killed the most people in history, although I think that smallpox is up there somewhere too, uh, oh, let me talk a tiny bit about smallpox. Well, in 1980, the World Health Assembly declared that the world was free of smallpox. But before that, humans have battled smallpox for thousands of years, like chickenpox, except it has a lot of very small blisters that occur on the skin. But when I say a lot, I mean a lot. Your skin is covered with them. And in in the past, the disease killed probably about one in three people that were infected with it. And it left survivors with all sorts of scarring, uh, usually people in uh, areas where smallpox was endemic. I'll remember that word, endemic. Well, they wound up having really bad scarring on their face and, and other areas. And sometimes you could get these blisters even on your eyes. So some people became blind as a result. And once, and this was bad enough in Europe where all this stuff may have started, although 
like a lot of a lot of people do think it may have started in Asia and ended up in Europe, but mortality rates wound up being much higher in areas outside of Europe as Europeans uh, and explorers wound up going to different parts of the world where people had little contact with the virus before these visitors brought it to their regions. Wow. High percentages of death in, let's say, native populations in the Americas from smallpox that were introduced by European explorers. In, in the 20th century alone, they think that smallpox killed 300 million people. Now, a disease has been eradicated. As you can, there, if you want to find smallpox, you have to go to a high-level lab where they still carry, for some reason, the uh, samples of it that still exist. But the actual biggest killer would be influenza. And during a typical flu season, probably hundreds of thousands of people worldwide die from the illness every year. In the U.S., it's about 30,000, mostly among the very elderly or immune compromised. But occasionally you get a new flu strain that emerges and you wind up with a pandemic with not only a faster spread of the disease, but oftentimes you get higher mortality rates. The most deadly flu pandemic that we know of, at least in recorded history, sometimes called the Spanish flu, even though it didn't originate in Spain, began in 1918, a hundred years ago, and it sickened up to 40% of the world population. 40% of the world population got sick with this thing. And it killed 50 million, 100 million people. Some people say 150 million people. And the question is, could it happen again? And the answer is, well, yeah, it sure can. And even with modern medical technology, you cannot avoid the occasional respiratory infection. Viral illnesses like colds and flus, these are common issues even for people who are generally perfectly healthy. Uh, you don't have to be weak and sick to wind up with a cold or wind up with the flu. You can expect influenza viruses to hit your part of the country pretty much anywhere from late fall to early spring on a yearly basis. Most people, thank goodness, weather their illness just fine, but some folks, you know, if they're very young, very old, chronic medical conditions maybe, may not survive, and that earned influenza the title the old man's friend because it ends their suffering, well, by killing them. Now, the flu may not be life-threatening in normal times. You might not take measures to prevent it. That makes it much more dangerous. And I have to tell you that it's very important for you to always have a plan of action with regards to this. The CDC recommends flu vaccines, as you can imagine, for everyone over six months of age. It's important to know, though, that the effectiveness of the vaccine may be less in some years where the current virus is much different than the previous years because they used the previous year's virus to make this year's vaccine. So it's important to take measures to prevent prevent the flu uh, and to isolate those people who are infected from those people that are healthy. Now, we've talked about making a sick room. We'll just talk about that in the future again. But other actions that you can take to decrease the chance of getting or spreading the flu Cover your nose and mouth with a tissue when you cough or sneeze. Throw the tissue in the trash. When you are done using it, you know, safely dispose of it. If there's no tissue available, cough or sneeze in, and sneeze into your upper arm. Don't sneeze into your hand itself. You're going to wind up touching a lot of other things and probably other people. Or your and, eyes. And your eyes. And, you <laughs> your know, mouth. Yeah, you just yes. got to 
get people sick. So wash your hands often with soap and water. We never wash our hands as often as we should. If soap and water is not available, have an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Keep one in your pocket, you know, or, or in your purse. This is a good idea for anybody, anywhere. Clean and disinfect surfaces and objects like doorknobs that might be contaminated with germs like the flu, uh, a little household bleach, Lysol, things like that. That will do it in just seconds. And, of course, you want to use face masks if you're really sick or around people who are really sick. That is a very common thing that's done in Asia where it's considered a sign of social responsibility to do that, to wear a face mask if you're ill and you're going out in public or uh some people are very, I guess, germaphobic there and will wear them all the time. Anyhow, yes, they we've will. seen we've seen that. Now, the thing is, with regards to fever, people who have fever are going to be contagious. And so you should wait 24 hours after the last episode of fever before exposing yourself to others. Uh, the flu, honestly, probably just going to be a bump on the road in your journey to survival it doesn't have to be the end of the road if you just follow some of these very basic things. So I think that this is a good message yes, for, the, <laughs> for the coming new year. Now, we're not going to have a new show next week. We're going to probably play one of our older shows. Are you kidding? We're actually giving a... Time, a little time off for no way. Yep, for the holiday. I for, may not believe you. <laughs> and I, in the meantime, we're going to be thinking about our New Year's resolutions, our New Year's resolutions. But most importantly, we want to wish you the merriest of Christmases and the happiest of Happy New Years and healthiest <laughs> of Happy New Years. Absolutely, that's right. Thanks so much. This has been Joe Alton for Amy Alton. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. <laughs>